Hey, it's Catherine. We want to end this year with a bang and even more listeners. Have you told your friends about the double shift yet? And you know, the double shift isn't just for moms. So tell your cousin who's pregnant about it, your friend who's considering having a baby. We even have male fans of the show. So don't be shy. Share it with the men in your life too. Post about it on social media, email it or text a link to your friends. It really makes a difference in getting the word out. Thanks so much. This is The Double Shift, the show about a new generation of working mothers. We're challenging how society sees moms and how we see ourselves. I'm your host, Katherine Goldstein. This season, we're getting personal with our guests because we believe the revolution at work and in society begins with a revolution in our homes. And this is our season finale. My name is Angela Garbez, and I'm the author of Like a Mother, A Feminist Journey Through the Science and Culture of Pregnancy. And I'm also the mother of two daughters who are ages five and one and a half. I love Angela's book because it's so far from your typical pregnancy book. There are no tips or tricks, but... Instead, she researches the real science of what we do and don't know about pregnancy, weaving in her own personal experiences. But I decided to have Angela on the show not to talk so much about pregnancy science, but instead the varied and intense social expectations around motherhood. These issues were fresh in my mind this summer as I started reading books about the mental load, unequal partnerships, systems to help busy working moms, and how to redefine relationships and let go of things. And there were some great insights and practical suggestions. But as I read through all of these books, I was reminded over and over that many of them have an underlying message that I don't agree with. Here's the thing. Too often, in the face of huge difficulties, we are offered micro-solutions, and life hacks, telling us as mothers we're doing things wrong and that we need to do better and try harder. Fuck that. Getting up at 5 a.m. isn't going to solve the problems working mothers face in America, nor is Sunday meal prep hacks or the latest to-do list app. In the second half of the show, Angela and I will get into how focusing on personal solutions redirects us away from seeing how much truly needs to change for mothers to have equity in this society. It keeps our ambitions for what is possible small. It keeps us quiet. For today's finale, we're doing a little less storytelling and a little more excavating about the root of the deep pressures mothers feel in our society. Of course, many people become mothers without giving birth, but for those that experience pregnancy, this pressure starts from the moment we learn we are pregnant and only grows from there. For today's episode, we are talking about it with author Angela Garbus. So Angela, could you describe the first moment when you're pregnant with your first daughter that you felt like you had done something wrong as a pregnant woman? Oh, yeah. I mean, I began that pregnancy 
thinking that I had done something wrong <laughs> because I found out that I was pregnant when I was deeply, deeply hungover. <laughs> um, and what had happened was it, it kind of goes even further back. Like I wish, you know, when I found out that I was pregnant, it was several months after I had lost a pregnancy, which had been really devastating for me. And part of my grieving process for that which was to sort of not think about trying to get pregnant or anything like that. I just put it out of my mind. But I was also depressed. I was drinking a lot. And it was a weird and confusing time. And uh, a few months had gone by and I still hadn't gotten my period again. And I was, you know, starting to wonder, like, is, am I normal? Is my body okay? Like, can I even do this? I'm 36. Am I too old? Like, what's happening? And so I had gone to my doctor and I had asked, you know, when should I expect this to come back? Because I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to move forward in my life. I'm trying to figure out where I'm at and whether or not I should be thinking about trying to get pregnant again, or is it even possible? And so um, he had suggested that we do a blood test to measure the level of HCG, which is human chorionic gonadotropin, which is a you know a hormone that hap- that comes on early in pregnancy and and you know basically like doubles every day. And when you take a pregnancy test, that's what it's measuring. So he said, you know, let's do a test. Let's just see what your level is at, and we want to see it dropping and be close to zero. Um, and based on that, we'll figure it out. Um, I ended up having to have two tests because uh, the first one didn't say anything. It was low, mm. but not as low as they had expected or were hoping. And then I went out one night with my husband. We kind of had a party night. Didn't really, um, wasn't really thinking about pregnancy or anything. <laughs> and the next morning, my doctor called at about eight o'clock in the morning. He woke me up and he said, you know, I think you're pregnant. And I was like, oh, no, no, I'm not pregnant. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was like, okay, let me, let me start over. You are pregnant. Your HCG level, you know, last week was like six. Now it's over 1,200. The only way that happens is pregnancy. Right. Right. So from the get-go, I wish that I could say that what I felt was relief, was joy, right? And But what I immediately felt was like, oh, God, like, did I just kill this baby. <laughs> you know, I had shots of, I definitely had multiple shots of tequila last night. Um, and so I actually, you know, th- like immediately upon hanging up, I like hit the Google and right. <laughs> I'm reading things on the what to expect website, which is, you know, one of the first things that comes up. And it's telling me how, you know, you really should not drink because you're, the fetus is processing things like the alcohol level is like twice as high in the fetus than it is in your bloodstream. So right away, I'm like, I've done, I've started this pregnancy off the worst possible way you could imagine. Like you've inadvertently so much right. harm. You've Just, already done so much harm. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so, so then I was, you know, feeling terrible, feeling, you know, shock, shame. But then literally the next paragraph was, oh, but what about, you know, one night out with your girlfriends when you had a few too many margaritas? And I'm like, okay, this is good. This is tequila. This is me. <laughs> and... <laughs> The guide says, don't worry about it. You know, it happens to everyone. So then I'm like, what? I don't know. But this leaves me feeling like I've clearly done something wrong, but you're telling me not to worry about it. I mean, that was like a moment where I was like, something's not quite right here. This doesn't square with, <laughs> with um, these are not the answers that I need, is basically what I felt in that moment. 
So I totally relate to this experience. And I think so many of us who've been pregnant know the internet can be a very dark and confusing place for pregnant women. And I remember with my first pregnancy, like I would try to like look up some simple question. And then like half an hour later, I'd be like hyperventilating about everything Mm -hmm. that could go wrong and freaking out because I'd like gone into a steam room before I knew I was pregnant. And so I think like hitting the Google, I think is something that many pregnant (laughs) women do. And Mm -hmm. um, it, it takes us to very dark places. Uh, But what kind of advice did you start to find, like once you started to look at more reputable sources instead of like frantically Googling, like you started to try to learn more about pregnancy? What were you finding? What was the advice that you you felt like you were getting? Well, so that's the thing. I I read so many books and I had really kind of a love-hate relationship with them because this is where we find the easiest information, right? It's there, it's accessible, and it's explaining this complex biological process, which I wanted to know everything about. But the problem that I had with these books is while there's valuable information in them, it's exactly what you just said. The key is that they are advice books, right? So that's what didn't sit well with me. And this is my issue, which is that the sources about pregnancy, um, we tend to present them as advice, as though there is a right or a wrong way to be pregnant, as though there aren't an infinite number of ways to be pregnant, just as there aren't an infinite number of ways to be a person. Right. So that just never sat well with me. Could you give us a few examples of advice or should I say like admonishments you you encountered about pregnancy? Because I think like the nature of advice is by its nature judgmental. Like advice is a is a directive that there's something right and wrong about a way to do things. Right. So I'd love to hear like as you're trying to learn and, and, you know, being early in this pregnancy, like what were some things that you encountered that felt sort of judgmental in terms of what you should or shouldn't be doing? Yeah, I mean, it's like walking through a minefield. They're they're everywhere. You know, I remember in the What to Expect book, um, which I had purchased at Goodwill. I don't know which edition it was, but um, I picked that up. There's many of them on the shelf, so they're widely in circulation. One of the very first things I read was, you might be wondering how your past experience with abortion could affect your pregnancy. And I was like, nope, definitely not a Hmm. question of mine. Um, But that felt really judgmental from the get-go. And then I'm reading books like the Sears Healthy Pregnancy book, which had been recommended to me by multiple people and which does have a lot of great information. But this is a book that's telling me, you know, Make sure if you're going to use the microwave, uh, well, maybe don't use the microwave and also only use glass Tupperware containers. We don't want, you know, we don't understand the risks of plastics. It's also telling you things like, you know, the research isn't in yet, but cell phones, cell phone radiation could be really bad. So, you know, definitely don't rest it on your belly. (laughs) It might even be like too much to have it in your bag while you're carrying it around, which is just like... I mean, and they're actually saying, you know, the the science isn't in on this, but why would you want to take that risk? It was it was sort of a breakthrough when I made this realization when I was writing the book, which is right or wrong, good and bad. These are all things that have to do with morality. And our cultural conversation about pregnancy and motherhood is so steeped in morality. And I thought, what if we took away, what if I just call BS? What if I just remove this moral framework? And I run with the assumption that we are all doing the best with what we have, right? Like assuming good intent on everyone's behalf and realizing that some people have more resources than others, but we're all doing the best with what we have. And 
a mother's health is not mutually exclusive from a baby's health. The other thing that I really believe about these books and everything we say from early pregnancy, we encourage the sublimation of the mother. Hmm. From the get-go, we say, you know, don't drink coffee, don't drink tea, right? Uh, don't have deli meat, don't have sushi. You know, you are who you are for decades before you get pregnant. But the moment you find out you're pregnant, the expectation is that you take a backseat, right? The health of the fetus is of utmost primacy and the health of the mother is kind of secondary. And I think that continues from pregnancy into motherhood where we're really sort of expected to be selfless caregivers. It's very easy for your identity to kind of take a backseat. This idea that the mother takes a backseat to anything a fetus or baby could possibly need, I bet that sounds familiar to many moms out there. But Angela explores in her book the astonishing lack of science and research that goes into maternal health, fetal development, and many basic processes of pregnancy. Compared to what we know about, say, the liver, we know so little about the placenta. Since we live in a world with a huge vacuum of definitive information, what replaces it when it comes to pregnant women is judgment and non-scientific behavioral directives. And once a baby arrives, that doesn't stop. And of course, raising kids is an art, not a science. And we're living in a time where society's expectations on how to be a good mother are becoming incredibly involved and intense and equally unscientific and judgmental, as is all of this pregnancy advice. These directives, this mental load, can feel like it requires a huge amount of brain power, logistics, and work to make our family and work lives even function. We'll be back with more from Angela Garbez to talk about this mental load on mothers after a word from our sponsors. Hi, senior producer Rachel McCarthy. Can I ask you a personal mom question? Sure you can, Catherine. So you have three kids. Did you breastfeed any of them? I breastfed all of them. Did you notice if pregnancy or breastfeeding changed your boobs in any way? That's so funny, Catherine. Um, yeah, I think it actually did. I can't tell if it's just the breastfeeding, the pregnancy, the age, but put it all together and things are definitely different in that area. So after I was done breastfeeding my son, my whole chest was just like wider, which I didn't know was a thing that could happen. And I realized I no longer knew my correct bra size. That happened to me, too. That's why I was so excited to try Third Love, which offers more than 80 sizes, including their signature half-cup sizes. I use their Fit Finder quiz, where you just answer a few simple questions to find your perfect fit in 60 seconds. I have been a loyal Third Love customer ever since. I love the lightweight, super-thin memory foam cups that mold to your shape. And when life happens and your body changes and you realize you might need a new size, fit stylists are available every day to help via text, chat, or phone. Gotta love that. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering our listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash double shift now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash double shift 
for 15% off today. Hi, Catherine. Hi, senior producer Rachel McCarthy. So I've noticed you wear those cute black flats a lot. Where'd you get them? Rachel, these are my Rothy's. These are the first pair I ever bought, and I have been a big fan of Rothy's for years. And this pair that I'm wearing is almost four years old. Can you tell that they're that old? Absolutely not. They look brand new. You know why they look new? I just washed them in the washing machine. Rothy's are machine washable, and every time I do that, they look brand new. I have never had a pair of flats hold up this well or are this comfortable. When I lived in New York City, I used to have to buy new flats like every year because they would just like fall apart from all the walking, but definitely not Rothy's. Double shifters, these are great shoes. Check out all the amazing styles available right now at rothys.com slash double shift. Go to rothys.com, that's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash double shift to get your new favorite flats. Comfort, style, and sustainability. These are the shoes you've been waiting for. Head to rothys.com slash double shift today. We're back. So after two seasons of The Double Shift, there is one specific moment in the show that has been brought up to me more than any other. It's from episode three of season one, The Candidate Who Carpools. Definitely check it out if you haven't listened yet. It's where I followed along with Ashton Clemens as she ran for state office in North Carolina while being a mom to three little kids. Ashton's husband, Brian, is highly involved in daily life and childcare logistics as Ashton is running for office. But there's this one moment while we're doing the interview that Ashton's daughter, Letty, accidentally gets left at ballet by the babysitter, and Ashton has to stop the interview to make a phone call and various arrangements. Here's me asking her about it after the fact. The moment of, like, all the logistics of the family that we just witnessed, like, that sort of reminded me this idea that even when both parents are so involved, so often it's the mother who has the mental checklist oh, yeah. about everything. Like, you knew immediately as she walked in, like, where's Letty? She's supposed to be with you. Like, you didn't miss a beat. What has been your experience with the, the mental checklist now that you're running for office? I think it's just more. I mean, there's just more on the checklist, and it's less routine. Do you feel like you can offload the checklist, or is the checklist always with you? No. Can any woman offload the checklist? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I wish. I wish I could. Um, and I think that's a major difference in my husband and I. And, and you know, I think he figures it out for sure. Um, but he do, he's not – he doesn't – it doesn't occupy this part of his brain in the way it does mine. Um, and he doesn't own it in the same way. You know, like, I'm the one sending the email, he's responding, then I'm getting the babysitters and, do, you know, doing all of those pieces. And it's not to say he doesn't do a whole lot. He does. It is different, though, I think. This moment resonated so much with people. We talked about it on the Fuck Mom Guilt World Tour that I did around season one, And so many places I go, moms want to talk to me about this mental load and mental checklist that in some ways seems to haunt a lot of mothers. So I wanted to talk to author Angela Garbez about all of this. On this season of The Double Shift, we're sort of 
the show is challenging the conventional home and family structures with the idea that some of our conventional ways of thinking about family can sort of hold mothers back at work and serve as an impediment to our happiness. And and part of that process that we're going through this season is to unpack the source of the mental load and not try to just life hack our way out of it. Um, mm-hmm. And given your area of expertise, where do you think the mental load comes from? I think it starts very early, right? What I was saying earlier about the sublimation of the mother, which happens pretty much the moment you find out you're pregnant, you are, you're not just yourself anymore, right? And how do you find a way to coexist with this person? How do you find a way to consider yourself equal, to really believe that your needs are, are just as important as this fetus, right? So I think you're thinking about all of those things. I think it begins in pregnancy. And then I think it carries through where, you know, you've been, you've been thinking about what's your caloric intake or like, what are you, are you eating the right foods, right? So that naturally extends to outside of the baby comes out of your body. And I think it begins in pregnancy from the, from the get go. Right, because if we're starting to think about all these things about what we're doing or not doing to our babies and the fact that we're using a cell phone <laughs> and that that could right. be irreparably be harming our <laughs> unborn child, that is this that's a, that's a, that's a form of the mental load. That is something that is in the in your mind that's weighing on you in some way. But how much of these ideas about the mental load and what mothers should be doing and our responsibility, how much do you think is imposed from the outside and how much of that is internalized for ourselves? I mean, that's a great question. I think it's I, I think it's both. I mean, for me anyway, I think it, it's fully both. And I think to undo it is it has to be a very conscious act. I mean, I think that there's also I derive pleasure in caring for the people that I love. That care and maintenance work is something that I have found, well, even before I became a mother, you know, I I loved to cook, right? Like, these are things that I have enjoyed. But then I also, I, I want to feel like I can abandon those things or or leave them or let go of some of them. But then you have these messages that are coming culturally that are basically reinforcing that this is your responsibility, this is your job. So I think that it's both. You know, when you're getting messages from yourself and you're getting messages from the outside, it's a mind fuck. And how do you break that cycle? How do you get out of that? And I don't know. I think the main thing is to talk about it and to be honest about it. And also to realize that people have different desires and expectations in that. Some people really derive a lot of satisfaction and happiness from that identity and from doing that work. Some people want to never do it and want to be free of it. And I think the key is for people to be able to choose. We don't exist in a culture or society that has any real intent on supporting us in any meaningful way. So the best thing to do is to find your own path um, and to try to support and build structures that help people, as many people as possible. And what I found, though, actually, is that I've, in this research, I've felt free. I am so much less interested in what anyone thinks about how I parent and how I mother. Um, I believe that we might turn to other people for expertise, but when it comes to my own lived experience in my life, I'm the expert. I think this also relates to this idea of of that you just mentioned about this idea of choosing, like choosing what you value in 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 your caretaking or what roles you want to have in your motherhood and and in your relationship. Could you elaborate a little bit more on how you sort of find that idea of choice and and how you empower yourself to make those choices? 
I don't I mean, I wish I could, I wish it could be so simple to be like, this is how I empower myself to make choices. Like, I think, you know, I'm 42 <laughs> years, am I 42? Yes, I'm 42 years old. <laughs> and I think, again, it's been a, it's been like a lifetime of unlearning shit. And, you know, getting to a place in my life where I can own the things like now I like, I, I mean, I think, it's still almost weird to me that people are like, oh, yeah, so I, like, like, let's talk about your expertise, right? I, it's, it's been hard for me to own that place. I've put in the time. I've put in the work. I have lived this life, right? I think one thing, too, is that I, as a woman of color, I'm the daughter of immigrants. I knew really early on, and I grew up in a very small town in Pennsylvania, it did not take me a long time to figure out that, I mean, the world was not meant for me. Mm-hmm. Right. Like this world was not built for me. I was always going to be on the outside. And you sort of develop this double consciousness. You know, you walk into a room, you've already clocked like how many people of color are there? Who's the person that I can look to if things get weird? And I think when you develop that, you're you're navigating, you're translating for your family, you're you're negotiating so many things. And I think that there are so many ways in which that is exhausting. But there are so many ways in which I feel like that's enriched my perspective. And as I've gotten older, I just feel like, I still feel like these institutions aren't built for me. Nothing here is is going to just be built. I can't slip into anything. So what do I choose? What's the path that I want to take? Like, what's the community that I want to build? That's what it is. It's, I wish that it was a really simple answer. I think it's just been a lifetime of of approaching things from a certain way and then after a certain point getting kind of tired of it (laughs) and then also trusting that experience. I'll also say this, becoming a mother, I mean, before I became a mother, I 100% own up to, you know, like leftist radical political leanings, but becoming a mother radicalized me Mm. in in like a physical way. (laughs) I just realized that we see it as such a culturally traditional act But, you know, there's never any revolution without mothers and children, right? I saw so clearly that motherhood is the place to break from our most oppressive traditions. And I think about the shit that I swallowed and the things that I dealt with throughout my life, and I don't want my daughters to have to deal with that, you know? And so I think that it, it was also something bigger than me, and that's what I think motherhood expands your perspective. I find this so powerful and I I totally can relate to this experience because basically as you're presented on your path to motherhood, you can either try everything possible to do things correctly and fit into a mold or you can radicalize yourself against like what you're being told a mother should be and what a mother should do. Like basically those are the two paths because other – like it's just very, very hard and I think so many women feel that they are doing wrong by their children if they don't choose the I'm going to do the everything correctly path and because that's what society's mm-hmm. expectation is so strong. Right. And then you'll you'll actually probably, you'll, unless you're extremely privileged and really, really lucky, like you're going to buckle, I think, under those expectations. There is no, there's no having it all. I mean, that's the other thing. Like you can't, you could never as a women, <laughs> females, like this, there's no way to win. You know, the reason why we don't know what we should know about pregnancy is because our society, again, like it it hates women. It doesn't value them, right? The way to get ahead is to play the game of men. 
And so I think we have to be thinking about building alternative structures, right, or or forging our own paths as opposed to finding a way to, like, buy into what's offered to us. And again, I think this is something that, you know, I look to the, the work of activists and people of color and, you know, and women of color. This is all this is stuff that people have been doing for decades, for centuries. Like, this is the work of survival. And I think when you realize that this is your families, your children's lives are on the line, and it's not the only way to get through is to, again, build your own path and find your own community um, and to reject what is offered to you. It's empowering to make your own way. It's also exhausting and it's hard, but it's much more worthwhile. That I think is really powerful. And that really speaks to me. In the book, you talk about other mothers and women in your life, but um, are there other structures and communities that you've said, like, I'm not going to try to fit into this one mold and I want to embrace a different kind of community or structure? I mean, what I'd like to do is, like, burn the whole system down, right, and have, like, feminist <laughs> socialism where we have, like, childcare, paid leave, <laughs> universal health care, all of that. But I think so one of the things is to become aware that these, like, these fights are ongoing and they cannot be won individually, right? So I think it's, to me, like, collective action is one of the most powerful things you can think about. And again, like, we're all involved in our, like, everyday lives, so it's hard to to see that we're not the society doesn't set it up so that it's it's easy to find those things. But I think simple things such as like I know that I cannot do it on my own. And I am fortunate because my parents live close by and even though I would say my mom helped me has helped me raise my two girls in infancy, you know, a couple of days a week and until getting them till we can put them into daycare. You know, that childcare isn't free. Right. There's an there's a very deep emotional task right. that um and there's a lot of intergenerational wrangling and misunderstanding right. that I have been mired in for years. But part of that is I mean this is again like it's it sounds like an alternative structure, right, to have but f- like raising children in community is is actually how it's is is actually traditional and how it's supposed to be done and how children and people thrive. Right. And that's how we've been doing it for most of human history. Yeah. Yeah. So finding, you know, and not everyone lives close to family. So that's a very specific thing. But as my daughters get older, you realize, too, that I have created really beautiful friendships and support systems that weren't based in, you know, my identity of like, oh, this is band that I like and this place that I like to hang out. Right. It's something much more immediate. Like, do we is there a parenting style? Is there a, a value system that we share, right? Or realizing like this friendship isn't about me and my individual tastes. It's about supporting each other and caring. And so I think that there's there's models like that and finding ways to include other people. And I think that's also talking about your experience parenting. So that also invites people in who are not necessarily parents and who have no interest in being parents, right? But who care about you who care about, who understand that it's possible to have, you know, a meaningful relationship with a small person without wanting to be a parent. So that's just one way I I see it, like that work of building a community and realizing that community looks different than what you might have expected it to look, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago. Right. And this is, um, this episode is our season finale. And we've talked to a bunch of different people who are creating communities and, and, creating structures outside of um, conventional nuclear family models and how they've come to that and the power of that throughout the season. 
and I, you know, I think that we all can learn so much from that. And sometimes it can, sometimes it might be something really radical. And sometimes it might be that, like, you live close to your parents and they help you with childcare, which is also my situation as well. So I, I think that it, it's really mm-hmm. good to think about that it's not necessarily, everything is not, even though I'm totally with you, like, let's blow the whole structure up. In the meantime, <laughs> it's really nice to have a grandma yeah. close by. <laughs> So, you know, and something else that I was thinking about is I totally relate to your your thinking about that this work f- for me has also helped me unburden from some of this social expectation. And people ask me if I feel mom guilt. And I'm like, no, not really, because I see mom guilt as like something imposed from the outside that it, that I don't feel, basically. But it's it's mm-hmm. really interesting because also – this this question of the mental load, like there's definitely been moments where I'm like, I got this, like I don't feel overwhelmed by the mental load. But now my kids in public school and like the number of things that come at us like literally every day of like requests and like special forms and all that stuff. And now I'm like having twins and I'm like, oh, my God, there's so many things. Like I'm like more empathetic <laughs> than I used to be to this idea mm-hmm. of the mental load. So do you have sort of a feeling that there's things that you're just willing to, like, let go of and turn off that are really sort of outside? Because it's like, it's like, yes, you could just not ever volunteer at the school. Like, that, that is one potential option for, like, less things to do or whatever. But is that the right choice? So, like, do you feel like there's certain things that this work has sort of empowered you to just turn off these, these certain tasks? Yeah. I mean, I think about, okay, so my daughter's going to start kindergarten next year. And we actually had considered her birthday's in October, so she just missed the cutoff for um, to start kindergarten this year. And we were thinking about trying to enroll her early. In the end, we decided not to. And one of the f- reasons was because I realized I had been I had spent a year like dreaming this fantasy of kindergarten where I'm no longer paying for full time childcare. Yes. But then I was like, oh, so kindergarten is not. A full day. Yeah. Right. It's like <laughs> six hours of the day and every Wednesday is early dismissal. Oh, God. <laughs> right. Yes. And so the reminder to me there is that so much of American life is built on a myth. Right. That the hours of school are based on the idea that there's one breadwinner who goes out there, the dad, and he works nine to five. And there's a mom at home who can pick the kid up at two thirty or three. Right. So I remind myself of this, which is that, you know, like this system is rigged. It's a setup. There's no way to win, right? And so in that sense, that helps me let go of any idea of mom guilt or anything. Yeah, like I don't have to do anything. This is not set up for me to feel good. This is not set up for my family to thrive, right? right? Like for me to be the person that I want to be, that I need to be, um, it's going to be fundamentally incompatible, with pretty much every institution that I face. So, yeah, I um I allow myself to to just let go of that shit. And it's easier said than done, you know? I think that there's like a it ebbs and flows. I definitely have waves where I feel like I feel like I should be doing more or somehow I'm not doing enough for my kids. Like, I'll be really honest about that. That's not a it's like a daily negotiation. But again, like I go back to kind of zooming out to that bird's eye view of things. And that helps me. It's like once you realize the system is rigged, it is very freeing. (laughs) Because you just like you can't play the game. Like there's no winning the game. So it's like it's okay to just not Mm -hmm. play. Um, It seems like yeah. And and that is empowering. Yeah. 
And it also helps me identify my own privilege, right? I mean, we, the thing is, like, if you, from every level of, of pregnancy to motherhood, right, like, I don't think we could ever, you could never overestimate the extent to which women of color, people of color go through pregnancy fully aware that there's a really good chance that they will be completely dismissed uh, in the healthcare process, that they might die in childbirth, that the chances are greater of that happening, right? And then we live in a culture that we are very comfortable criticizing parents of color and in fact criminalizing parents of color. Yes. Right. The way that we talk about, you know, migration and right now immigration into this country, like we allow ourselves to just question, like maybe these aren't these are not good parents because they're, they're they've traveled this distance to come here. Right. But we allow ourselves to even entertain the thought that making that journey, which is to give your children a better life. Somehow we're we allow we allow it to be part of the dialogue that it's like it's legit that we could criticize these parents. And that's entirely because they are brown. Right. Right. So I think that when you step back and see like that you can't win, right, you also realize like how much more do I have than other people? Yes. And I think that that's a, that's an empowering thing, too. It makes it can make you feel grateful for where you're at, no matter how hard it can be. This idea from Angela that motherhood radicalized her. I felt it so strongly in my own life and work. In some ways, the double shift is the product of my radicalization. And as Angela highlights, gratitude for where we are should always be a piece of this equation. But there is also so much power in her ideas that the way motherhood in America is typically constructed is not a game anyone is set up to win, even people with a lot going for them. And for some of us, especially people who've thrived professionally, and succeeded in other areas of our lives or have never personally faced blatant discrimination, becoming a mother can give us a window into the experience of what it means to be marginalized. And no life hack spreadsheet system is going to fix that. But accepting you aren't going to win this game, so you might as well not try to conform to society's completely unreasonable expectations or feel bad about it, that has power. And standing together with other mothers across backgrounds in this defiance, now that's revolutionary. If you want to hear more from this conversation with Angela Garbez, become a member of The Double Shift. For our members-only bonus content this week, she and I discuss some really interesting science about miscarriages, along with our personal experiences. It's a great conversation, and I hope you'll become a member of The Double Shift to hear it. Your monthly contributions mean so much to our ability to make this show. We are scrappy, grant-funded, and mom-run. I will be staying in touch with our members between now and next season, and please know, members, You are instrumental in funding our third season. We can't do this without you. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. That's thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. I am taking an unpaid maternity leave in the first part of 2020, but if you want to be sure you don't miss the latest Double Shift news and details about when we're coming back from hiatus, be sure you are subscribed to the show. 
And also sign up for our newsletter at thedoubleshift.com or follow us on Instagram at thedoubleshift. The Double Shift is created and hosted by me, Katherine Goldstein. Our senior producer is Rachel McCarthy. We're also produced by Asal Asanipur. Our editor is Anita Rao. Our editorial advisor is Amy Westervelt. Our research assistant is Julia Hayward. Music is by Travis Morrison. Our theme song is by Palehound. Audio mix by Ashley Ann Krigbaum. Our advisory board includes Amy Henderson and Lauren Smith Brody. We're funded in part by the generous support of the Ford Foundation. And you are members. Don't forget to go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. We are independently produced and part of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. Because this is the last episode of the season, I have a bunch more people I want to thank for making this show possible and encouraging me on this journey. Allison Marino at Lipstick and Vinyl. Jackie Daniels. Farai Chudea, Ashley Rutledge, Jane Sacco, Katrina Williams at 5200 Photo, Acton Family Giving, Taylor Brown, Cameron Dye, the Southern Documentary Fund, all of the twin moms who have so kindly reached out to me, and my chief twin mom counsel, Jenny Butler and Liz Baltero. Our Double Shift members, you are truly the best. Buck and Kay Goldstein, Judy Morrison, my muse, Asher Morrison, And the man who believed in the double shift from the very beginning, I'm going to (laughs) cry, Travis Morrison. I couldn't do any of this without you, Travis. I'm your host, Katherine Goldstein. Thanks for joining the double shift.